Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm so thrilled to be joined by creator, writer, and executive producer of Sundance TV State of the Union, Nick Hornby. Um, you know, and I wanted to start by by asking a little bit about what some of the takeaways were from writing the first season of this show. You know, you had a very clear idea at the beginning that the conversation would be more interesting by having the conversation before they go into the office because they're not deflated; they haven't said everything to each other, and so there's a lot of you know, great ideas that you already had about how to shape and how to form it structurally before you even went into the first season. But what were some of the important takeaways from from that journey and that process that you really wanted to pull into the second season of the show? Um, well, as you say, it seemed like a pretty good um, structure to me. And I really like the idea of um, the beforehand stuff because you've got a week of life uh, that's happened um, plus um, the, the sort of mess of what are we going to talk about and then that always gets sidetracked into other things and then I guess that becomes a, a form of, of therapy. Um, I think what I wanted to do with the second series, um, I, I, I knew that I didn't want to write about the same characters and um, I didn't want to write about the same age uh, because uh, relationships change um as, as as we get older and so for the show to have a lease of life i think it's important that as much human experience is incorporated into it as possible and i went for the um the age that these characters are i mean it's it's kind of around my own age but things are more serious then i mean if you're if you're going to um think about separating then it's a huge deal whereas <clears throat> we all know lots of people who separate in their 20s and 30s and it's it's painful but it's you know that there will be other relationships and things will will shuffle around um so it was it was the gr the gravity of what I wanted to go for this time I think Mm -hmm. And I love that you established very early on that this is a couple that they're kind of going through the possibility of separating, but it's not because some monumental shift or change happened. It's just that they've ended up in a place where they're not on the same page anymore. And it's very much coming from her perspective. And within those first few minutes, she said the words, I think I might want a divorce. But she also says, I love you. And he says it back to her. And was it important to you to really establish that early on that this isn't about one thing that happened? It's just over time, they've landed in a completely different space and, and now she wants to explore what that might look like separately but still to have a partnership together absolutely I think it's it's sort of the most profound thing <clears throat> to deal with about marriages that you know hopefully when you start off you're in the same place but if you if you plot a course over many many years then you only have to be slightly off um uh after a couple of years for that to become something vast by the time you've been married for three, four decades. Yeah. And with the writing of these characters and with the fact that this is a couple that have been together significantly longer <clears> than <throat> the couple that you're writing in the first season, is there, a, is there a challenge in finding a way to explore the history of their relationship, to give the audience the details without being didactic? You know, when they talk about his infidelity, that happened over 20 years ago in their relationship. So they've had every type of conversation. So you have to think very specifically about the language and how you're going to tell the audience that piece of information. Yes. Um... I mean, there is a, a sense in which his infidelities mm -hmm. have become part of the story and have, have been part of the story for a long time. Uh, but of course, 
um, being part of the story doesn't necessarily mean they're forgiven or forgotten or that you can wipe the slate clean after them. Um, <clears throat> similarly with, with her politics. Um, and um, really that was one of the things that I set out to write about is, is how you bridge those particular gaps in a marriage because it, it is becoming complicated and, and things are moving very quickly. So, um, yeah, I think you, you have to start with the sense of knowing who they are and what the relationship was because you can't really just invent things halfway through that don't feel bedded in and with that in mind do you like to kind of map out a lot of their backstory and a lot of their history before you go into the writing process or is part of that the discovery of the writing process itself is where you find the details <clears throat> well it's somewhere in between i think more or less with everything i do which is i know that if i start it straight away it's going to go wrong if i don't know who the people are so i've walked around with them for quite a long time before I start. I'm not necessarily writing anything down, but just filling in details, you know, what, what they've been doing, what, what jobs they had, what kind of people they are, all that I know before I sit down. And what comes up in the writing is more uh, the loops of conversation and some narrative shifts. I mean, always the idea with these things is that they have a beginning, a middle and an end. Both both seasons, each episode has a beginning, a middle and an end. And, and so does the, the series. So, you know, when, when you've got 10 minutes to play with, um, structurally, it's uh, it imposes a discipline that you don't necessarily always have in longer works. With the first season, structurally, it sounded like you had a very strong idea of where you wanted that season to end and kind of what you thought the final lines would be. Was that similar with this season where you had a very strong idea of the ending and it was about the journey and building out how to get there? Yes. Um, uh, I, I, I knew that I wanted it to end in a different way from the first season. And um, uh, I think you can't always rely on marital therapy to get you out of an inevitable conclusion. I mean, if there are, say, 10 seasons of this, I have no idea whether I'll write 10 seasons or whether anyone will want them, but you'd like to um, make the audience guess, really, how it, which way it's going to go between each one. I look forward to people, you know, bookmakers setting odds and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and with that idea of, of every single episode, like you said, has a, a very clear beginning, middle, end, and there is a real structure. And, and I feel like you talk a lot about how writing dialogue is something that, that is exciting in this project. You know, you never get to write 10 page dialogue scenes yeah. in a book, in a screenplay, in any other format, um, and that it's something that comes quite naturally. But then after you write that, it's the journey of going back and, and kind of making sure that it has that structure. And so what's that What's that editing process for you of, of taking the crux of the dialogue and then making sure that you're building that structure into it? Um, well, I think recognizing that um, within the 10 minutes there are scenes um even though it's just one scene but there are scenes in terms of um tone mood um what they're riffing about and um so when I, I i write then usually what happens is that one scene as it were is too long um uh, so then it's going back to pare that down um so that you can fit in the next tone the next mood um, 
and it's it's okay. I mean, uh, it, it doesn't feel that different to to other writing, but um, I, I suppose the, the the idea of a ten minute scene is a myth, really, because you've still got jobs to do within the ten minutes. And you give us really great character introductions right from the get-go. We start to get such a strong sense of who these characters are. And even kind of going back and looking at the first 60 seconds with Brendan Gleeson's character walking into the coffee shop before Patricia Clarkson's even walked in the door, the way that he orders coffee, the conversation that he has with Jay, who works at the coffee shop, you know, the fact that the idea of there being more than one type of coffee for him to choose between is something that is a real sticking point. You know, we already have a sense of some of the relationship dynamics. And did you find that the introduction of Jay as, as kind of a third character really allowed a lot more opportunity for, for conversations outside of the relationship that allowed a lot of subtext and allowed a different way of telling us about their relationship together. Well, Jay was a godsend for me um, as, as a writer. Um, the, the idea of Jay was a godsend. And then when Esco turned up, then Esco was, was a godsend. So Stephen compared... Esco to Jack Black in, in High Fidelity, and I, I could see exactly what Stephen meant. And um, uh, Stephen's note every day was, more Esco, more Esco, and I'd go off and write it. And I think Stephen was right. Um, uh, not every scene had Esco, uh, not every episode had Esco in it originally, but um, we missed them when they weren't there. So um, we went back and did it again. Yeah. And Jay's also such a great character in terms of the way that you're building and releasing tension between Patricia, between Brendan. And then you have Jay kind of comes in and allows this release and allows this kind of breath for the audience when they're in moments of contention. And was was that kind of an intentional thing that you really wanted that character to do as well throughout the season? Yes. Now, Jay could do all sorts of jobs for us. Um, there's the political aspect and how Jay divides Patty and uh, <clears throat> and Brendan initially. Um, but also the complications of Jay being an actual person rather than a representative of uh, contemporary transgender thinking. And um, um, there's no doubt that Patty gets it wrong sometimes by thinking about everyone as a group and and her husband is very quick to pick up on that and and to try and in individuate in a way that hopefully is more interesting than that character first appeared and with the counseling that they're going through in this season um i thought it was interesting that the therapy office is literally just up a staircase within the coffee shop and so it feels like the presence of it is literally looming right over them throughout the entire season and when we get to see them walk right up towards the door and there's even a moment where you bring one of the counselors down through the coffee shop as they're walking out for the day um was that something that you wrote into the script or was that a byproduct of the location that you ended up filming in well um I was asked to set this season in, in the US and I conceived of American characters who I felt could only be American. Um, and actually one of the things that held me up for a while was trying to think of the geography that I wanted. And um, I wanted to lose cars. I mean, obviously, 
most American appointments of any kind involve cars or lifts. If you're going to set them in a city, it would be a, a, it would involve an elevator. Um, so every time I tried to think about what that end scene would be, and in, in the first series we had literally crossing the road from the pub uh, to, to the to the therapist's office, it was very hard for me to think of a US equivalent of that journey. And um, uh, so eventually I, I felt happy when I realised that it was a kind of... Um, you know, like maybe one cool block in a in a Connecticut town, um, which probably has a vinyl shop across the road, a yoga studio next door, and and a therapist's office above a coffee shop. And I thought, oh, okay, I can see that, and that means it's always going to end with the going up the stairs. Yeah. And with Stephen Frears directing, it's an impressive feat for him because you know there's there's a limited scope in in where he can place the characters and where he can move them around. Um, and are you kind of detailing some of that out in the writing in the scripts of of kind of where in the coffee shop are they going to be located? You know, where are they going to move over to, or is it really all down uh, to the directing? It's, uh, yeah, God no. Um, uh, no, Stephen's been quite brilliant. Stephen and his DP um, have worked all that out and. Um, I think it's one of the marvels of both seasons is that you don't actually notice, as you might, that people are just sitting still. Um, and when I think a, a few times people have asked me if I'd be interested in it being a stage play. And, um, and I think I'm not sure how that works, because then it really is completely static unless you do something in between each of the 10 episodes, you know, shift a table or something, which I suppose is possible. But that sense of um, dynamic movement of the camera, but not ever drawing attention to itself, that's that's those two working it out. And I think both seasons end with them sitting on a sofa rather than um, uh, at a table and... Uh, I mean, we did have that thing in the first season that it was there was a big shock for Chris O'Dowd's character when he walks in and someone's sitting at his pub table and it is quite um, confused by it. Um, but now I, I don't really think about it. I just think about the people and the and the dialogue and and they work out the rest. Yeah. Is that the same with with kind of costume details as well? Obviously, you wouldn't be writing specifically what they're wearing. But, you know, there's the, the great thing of like Brendan Gleeson coming in and wearing a suit in the first episode because he doesn't necessarily know why he's going to counselling. And then he's very much kind of stagnant wearing the same colours before he changes. And Patricia Clarkson's coming in in you know, workout clothes, you know, protest gear, a leather jacket, because she's a very kind of like fluid in motion character. And again, was that very much all landing with Stephen or were any of those details in the scripts? I think there were a couple of details in the script. I think I might have specified that Brendan was wearing a suit um, in the first one. And then they they take the idea of who's changing and how quickly and run with it. And when you're figuring out those details of kind of evolution and change, you know, going through this the the counseling process they're obviously kind of both learning certain things about each other about themselves and so there are these kind of small evolutions and changes but it's also not about either of them becoming a completely different person at the end of that time you know even when brendan starts striking up the friendship with jay and coming to the coffee shop a lot more it suddenly becomes something where he comes there every day it's kind of it's a new routine and and 
solid thing in his life in a different way. Um, and so how did you think about the scope of kind of change and evolution that would feel kind of detailed, but also very nuanced at the same time? Well, you know, I always knew that, um, that Brendan's character would get on with Jay um, and, and that that would evolve over the course of a series. But I wanted it to be in a way that really didn't suggest any kind of radical change in him. You, you just get the impression that that's maybe how he's made friendships his entire life. And um, uh, it just becomes an organic part, as you say, of his life rather than I cast out all my old ways and I embrace the new. It, it, it's like, no, this person's really interesting and I want to get to know them. And, um, and I, I find their relationship very cute um by by the end of it um and yeah i suppose one of the things that was in my mind before i started was that i wanted each partner in the marriage to understand each other better but know that they would be unable to make that last step towards each other Mm-hmm. And when we're watching the discourse between the two of them and, and when there are kind of moments of contention that they have with one another, it's interesting because they're in a very public setting. So obviously they can't raise their voices too much. And at the same time, it never feels like the way that they're having this dialogue is that different from the way that they would be having it at home. You know, the fa- and some of that's the, the performance and the delivery, you know, Patricia Clarkson having a very kind of soft spoken but angry tone of voice that she can achieve. But it also feels like it's very much in the writing of, of the dialogue and the things that they're saying to each other informing the way that they're then performing it. Did you really want it to be a reflection of, of this is also who they would be at home with one another in that regard? Yes, um, I, I knew that they wouldn't, rant and rave necessarily, but that they were both um, forceful people who wouldn't necessarily give the other an inch. Um, uh, but it, it comes from, um, it comes really for, more from the mind, I guess, than um, feelings having got the better of them. And when they're having the conversation about what was the turning moment for Ellen, what was the moment that she realized that she didn't want to be married to him anymore? And, you know, it's it's an interesting conversation because she's like, it's the time that you didn't want to go see the movie The Wife with me. And he's like, oh, I could catch up. And she's saying, no, you can't. And obviously, again, there's so much great subtext just in those few lines between them. What was kind of the precipice for you deciding that that was going to be the moment for her? Because obviously it's not about him not coming to see the movie. It's that that was the final point in a whole series of events. Well, I can remember writing that scene and um, and writing down the question, what was, was there a moment for you? And just thinking, oh, I really want her to say, yes, there was. And I really want that moment to be something that seems trivial, but that actually does speak of a, um, a mindset that isn't going to sit easily with her. Um, and... I just thought the thing about the wife just came to me. I wanted to try it, see what it felt like. And I thought, no, well, that, that actually could work. But if if someone refuses to see a movie simply on the basis of its title um, and its apparent femininity, as it were, then that really could make somebody lose their rag and help uh, help them in contemplating lots of things that have been troubling them over the years. Yeah. 
there's also some great comedy that comes out of the conversations from the fact that they do have that history and they can say certain things to each other that maybe they wouldn't say to anyone else. Like I love the moment when 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 Scott says that their two year old grandchild is a really boring person, and obviously you wouldn't be able to say that to anyone else. And what were some of the comedic moments that you felt really landed out of the history that the two of them have together like that? Oh, that's a hard, that's a hard question. Um, well, that was one of them. Um, I think, you know, there's the sort of funny, sad thing about how he didn't have secrets. Um, he just had facts that hadn't been disclosed. And and her seeing that, well, they're talking about his, his infidelities. Um, uh, yeah, the, the TV and film stuff. I mean, I, you know, anything you can use to furnish a relationship in the way that you might furnish a room and, and and suggest they have they have this long history. Um I, I think though anyone who's been in a relationship for more than 10 years could find an equivalent for those things. The yeah. shorthand and the um uh the irritations that you've you've sort of got over but still haven't forgotten. Was it was it easy to kind of find what their dialogue and what their shorthand was going to be with one another? Because there is just that intrinsic familiarity in every single thing that they say to one another. No, I think that's something that comes over drafts, actually, um, that, that you sometimes write something that when you read it back, it, you feel it's not sitting right and that... Um, they are not the people to whom this might have happened. They're the people to whom this might have happened. And um, yeah, it's getting it's getting those details right. I think it's trial and error with with that stuff. And with that idea of of secrets between them, there's such a history and yet there's the exploration of things that they don't know about each other you know mostly stemming from him not noticing or seeing certain things within her and and her kind of feeling a little reticent to even share at a certain point but then you kind of get to flip that around where towards the end of the season like she doesn't know that he's coming to the coffee shop every single day she doesn't know that he has become friends with Jay and you know right away um and so where did you kind of find what would be the things that even though they know so much about one another would still be the things after all these years or the moments that they would have stopped paying attention well with um with ellen it's i suppose her life of the spirit and life of the mind and uh, that he hasn't been interested at all in you know her her spiritual beliefs and um uh, even the, the yoga and, and so on, he doesn't really know anything about it and clearly has never shown any interest. And suddenly he's in this new world, this this one block in this in this uh, commuter town, um, which he's never noticed before. And, uh, and he does become more curious about it because he didn't know it existed. Um, and of course, she's hurt because it's too little too late and he asks her if she's had personal therapy which is kind of an outrageous question for a, a husband to ask a wife um and then yes the again jay come came in very useful because i don't think ellen would ever think that scott was capable of forging that kind of relationship 
Mm-hmm. Was it easy to find the moment where you wanted Scott to start kind of having self-reflections as someone who clearly hasn't stepped back and looked at themselves in that way before and when you wanted to start creating those shifts and changes in him as a character? Yeah, I think you've always got to be aware with this kind of writing that things do need to shift. Um, you, you can't write the same episode twice. So um, you hopefully have movement within each episode and then the second half uh, from episode five onwards, you think, okay, you, you now have to have the end in sight. You have to prepare the ending. It can't just suddenly be the toss of a coin um, at the end of episode 10, whether they stay together or not. Uh, but I wanted to uh, make make that journey more agonizing and interesting for both of them by, by Scott, Yes, becoming a little bit more alive to himself. Yeah. And and the counselling that they're going to, you know, we learn very early on that it's a couple that's that's counselling them. So there's a pair of people and there's a moment where one of the counsellors actually comes through the coffee shop and they stop and they have a whole dialogue, which gives us a totally different window into the dynamic and what might potentially be happening in the room. What was the precipice for wanting to bring a small element of the room down into the coffee shop in this season? Um. Well, I think I wanted to show that clearly the the counselling was a um, almost an irrelevance to them that it w- wouldn't be the sort of thing that could help Scott at all, um, and I think the idea of a couple doing a couple is just quite funny, especially if the couple themselves who are doling out the advice are not getting on with each other. And in watching a couple go through this dialogue and go through the journey of of potentially splitting up, it, it feels like on paper it should be something that feels fairly bleak to kind of connect with and to watch. And yet there's a real hopefulness and optimism to it because you're watching a couple who, even if they choose not to stay together, still want to be part of one another's lives. They still want to have a partnership. They want to figure out how to be there as parents for their kids, even though their kids are completely grown and are raising their own families. Um, and tonally, was that something that you really wanted to have throughout this season? Because it also felt that way in the first season as well. Yes, it was what I wanted, but also I don't really feel capable of writing things um, that are not like that, actually. Um, If you want bleak hopelessness, then there's no shortage of choice um, among films and television programmes. And, you know, I like them as much as everybody else does, but um, for myself, I would rather find reasons to be cheerful um, and um, and to make them as as realistic as possible, and sometimes I even feel like I have some kind of um, duty to provide rays of light. I mean, there haven't been many rays of light for any of us the last two or three years. Um, so who needs to be told that life is miserable and short? <laughs> And once Patricia Clarkson and Brendan Gleeson were cast on this season, um, you know, do you like to kind of go back and revisit the scripts once you have a cast and kind of think about their strengths as performers or even as you're shooting the season, look at some of the tweaks and changes once you see them inhabit the characters? Well, um, they were both, well, all three were very involved um, in uh, script. So, you know, we had a very helpful table reading and then I had lots of conversations with all of them. Um, 
both before and during shooting. In a way, it was the curse of COVID because not, none of them had anything to do apart from um, keep reading the scripts and talking to each other. Um, if, if it had been now, for example, I'm sure they'd have all been out every evening and I wouldn't have heard from them. <laughs> <laughs> and then in terms of your overall writing process, um, I actually wanted to ask you about um, the discovery for you and that jigsaw puzzles are a really key part of the process. <laughs> because I love, the, I love the way that you've described how having something to focus on to break up writing, but something that keeps you in the zone is a really beneficial thing. Um, and I was just really fascinated and curious about the point and where and how you landed on jigsaw puzzles being that perfect escapism without full escapism. Well, um, I started doing jigsaw puzzles on holiday with a, a group of friends. Uh, um, we're doing it, you know, every summer and noticing that I particularly enjoyed getting lost in it for half an hour or so. And I, I was looking for things that that could perform that function in my writing space. So I thought I'd try and, and it worked out really well. And... Um, I used to try and do crossword puzzles. That, that was my break. I, I still do crossword puzzles, but I, it occurred to me that if you do cryptic crosswords, then it, there's very likely to be a point in the day when you are stuck on your puzzle at the same time as you're stuck in your writing. Um, and that seemed to be a very unhappy state of affairs to be in. And I think the thing about jigsaws is that you very rarely get stuck I mean some passages are much slower than others but really it's a sort of steady job of work that doesn't uh, require too much intellect and uh, I've increasingly come to realize that that space in between the sentence is the most important part of the, the writing uh, because that's where you either go mad or stay sane actually and I, you know, when I talk to young people, I say, if you can do a thousand words of prose a day, that's amazing. That's really good. But if you copied a thousand words out of a book, it would take you about 15 minutes. So, you know, that's a long day where you're not really doing the actual writing of the words. So what do you do? Yeah. No, I really, really love that and um, appreciate you sharing all about your process in putting together State of the Union. The second season was just as brilliant as the first. Thank you so, so okay. much, Nick.